Good morning, we are live. Yep, we're my we are live. I accidentally took your mic mark, but we're live. How are you doing this morning? John, I am doing fantastic. It's a beautiful sunny morning and we're gonna talk about the atonement today. So it doesn't get any better than that. That's true. Yeah, we don't get a lot of sunshine in Montana. We're really happy right now, and this is our favorite topic. Uh, Mark, why do you like to talk about the atonement so much? I like to talk about the atonement because it, it, the benefits for humanity, what has Christ actually accomplished for us? And as we've talked about so many times in previous podcasts, uh, understanding what Jesus has actually done for us makes a world of difference. It, so, yeah, this is about what he's done for us and the benefits to humanity. Yeah, that's right. Well, I have a really superficial reason why I like talking about the atonement. For anyone who's ever, like, taken Bible Interpretation 101 or Greek or Hebrew, uh, they teach you ways that you can't do word studies. So I can't understand the essence of a butterfly by analyzing the relationship of the word butter to fly. Uh, because it will not convey to me the essence of what a butterfly is. Or if um, the word bat can mean a, f a furry flying thing, and it can also mean something I hit a ball with. And that those words mean two things does not mean that those two objects are related. So typically when we talk about etymology, the study of words, their composition, their relation to one another, you can't just look at a word and piece it together unless you have access to Latin or Greek. Uh, to know what the meaning is. Let me fix this. Well, atonement is an exception to that rule because it, like the word trinity, is a word that the church created to account for a biblical fact, uh, but it was actually created in English. And it literally means at-one-ment, which is really cool. Yeah. So the atonement is God's work of making humanity at one with him again. So, uh, there's more than one view of the atonement. I think it's sometimes better, instead of using the word view or theory, even to talk about dimensions of the atonement. Right. Uh, we, as Catholics, don't subscribe to only one view of the atonement. I know um, some Protestant denominations do, some don't. Um, but these aren't mathematical formulas where if you really like one, well, the others are just not true. Because one of the things that we'll be looking at is um, the Bible seems to have more than one understanding exactly. of the work of Christ. And the early church sure did. Uh, we see examples of it in the Old Testament. I mean, for instance, you have the Passover, the Paschal Lamb. You have the Day of the Atonement, Yom Kippur. And you have all these ongoing daily sacrifices offered in the temple and uh in bible college i wondered well which one of those did jesus fulfill and the answer of course is yes they are <laughs> all different foreshadowing dimensions of what christ does yeah. would you like to say a little bit about that well yeah i think maybe a little off topic but maybe um with each of these theories and you're right well maybe theory isn't necessarily the best word because it's not it's not theory in the sense that we wonder if these are true. These are actual aspects of what Jesus really did and what he accomplished. Yep. But we use theory for a lack of, maybe lack of a better word, but I like aspects. Mm -hmm. That in each of these, we consider, well, what is the problem? 
Mm-hmm. Salvation is like a diamond. It's got many different facets. You can look at it from That's a different right. way. And they're all true. It's all they're all facets of the same diamond. So we have to ask the question, what is it, what is the problem? And so if the problem was we're enslaved to the tyranny of the devil, or we're corrupted in our nature, or we're sinners in a courtroom, what is the problem that the cross solves? And equally, and just as important, is what role does God play? Mm-hmm. Because if if God is only an angry judge, uh, doesn't say much about our relationship to Him. Mm-hmm. But in in some of these theories or some of these aspects, uh, He's a redeemer, or He's a parent, or He's a doctor, or He's a loving Father who wants to fix His kids, mm-hmm. uh, or He's a judge. Or so the specific theory, the specific aspect, there is a problem. God takes a specific role to address that problem. Christ comes to do a specific thing Mm -hmm. in order to fix that problem, which gives various benefits for humanity. And so you get this full picture, the many different metaphors and sides of this same amazing diamond that we call salvation. Mm -hmm. I couldn't say that any better. I think it's helpful to remember the obvious. We have more than one problem. Uh, We talked a little bit about philosophy before we got to theology. And there's this philosophical movement in the late Middle Ages called nominalism, uh, where there can only be one answer for something. And uh, that can be true in mathematics, but it's not true in theology. It's often not true in relationships as well, which theology ultimately is a study of relationship between God and humanity. Uh, We have more than one problem. So that is why we have more than one understanding of the atonement. So, Mark, I know you've got a lot of Bible references. I've got my Bible handy. I've yep. got my book on the shelf that I'm probably going to grab for your first view. Uh, but the first view is one that a lot of listeners, uh, especially in the Western world or the Protestant world, would be unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. The Christus Victor view. Can you tell us about that, Mark? Uh, sure. Christus Victor. It sounds like it means what it sounds like. Jesus is a victor. Mm-hmm. He's won something. Uh, so briefly, again, we ask the question: What is the problem with Christus Victor? The problem that God is addressing is humanity is enslaved, and we're enslaved to the tyranny of Satan. We're in bondage. Uh, we're in bondage to suffering. And we're guilty, and because of humanity's sin, we, have, we, in a sense, have sold ourselves into bondage to the devil. So God's role in that is he's specifically redeemer. He has come to uh, set us free, win a victory that we might be free. In mm-hmm. all of these aspects of the atonement, uh, this is why the incarnation becomes absolutely important, why Jesus has to be 100% fully God and 100% fully man. So in this case, Jesus dies as the God-man, so you could say uh, he becomes us in order to deliver us. So I'll, I'll give our listeners a, a list of scriptures. I'm not going to unpack them now, but you can have them. You can go back and look at them. These are the scriptures from which uh, the early church derives this understanding of Christus Victor. So 1 John 3, 8, 1 through 10. Or sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the entire book of Exodus that God mm-hmm. delivers Israel as a paradigm out from, out from under the slavery of 
Pharaoh. We talked about that a lot in our last episode. Yeah. Christ in choosing prophetic acts that would provide an interpretive key to his entire ministry, his incarnation, everything. He chose to act like Moses and set people free. Yeah. Yeah, and if Exodus is the primary paradigm of the old in the Old Testament of what Christ has come to do, then we it has to be. And which you're going to mention the the Paschal mystery, how important the Passover is in the escape from death. That's what that's what that's what Israel received. That's how mm-hmm. it benefited them. They escaped death. They were delivered from slavery and they escaped death. Mm-hmm. So Jesus's primary function has to be something along the lines of delivering his people from slavery and rescuing them from death. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so those are some of the, the passages. And the idea is there's, there's kind of a, this divine struggle and conflict in which God emerges victorious. You also want to notice in the New Testament the number of times the language of redemption is used. We've mm-hmm. been redeemed. And then the primary benefit of humanity. So Jesus dies to defeat the powers of sin, death, and evil. And we he frees us from the devil's tyranny. And that's personally, we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, but also corporately as the church. So what Christus Victor does, primarily we could look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, that because of his resurrection, God has placed him as head over all things, over mm-hmm. all, he is in, and all principalities and powers and rulers and authorities are in subjection under him, verse 23, for the sake of the church. So Jesus wins this cosmic victory over the powers of sin, death, evil, suffering, and Satan in order to rescue his people from slavery and deliver them from death. Yeah. Uh, it's the Bible in a nutshell, pretty much. I'm holding a book right now. Um, and if everyone would read and understand this book, I think they'd understand, uh, the basic content of the Christian faith. It's called On the Incarnation. It's by St. Athanasius. I personally think it's the best work of theology ever written outside the Bible. Um, so what I'm holding in my hand is about a hundred pages, but, uh, half of it is a translation and half of it is Greek. So this book is only about 50 pages, but it's it's really profound. And uh, I remember the first time I read it, it blew my mind because I thought, wow, I thought I understood the gospel before. Um, but St. Mm-hmm. Athanasius, he is a 4th century uh, church father, bishop in Alexandria, what is now Egypt. Well, it's then Egypt too. Um, he asks the question, why did the word become flesh? Mm-hmm. Why did God become human in Jesus Christ? And uh, he comes from a very different angle than what I was used to. He talked about the divine dilemma, and I love this. Mm. He talks about how um, Adam and Eve, God created for uh, love and for life. God created, uh, this is very theology of the body as well, Um, but as God created Adam and Eve to love one another, so that love is a reflection of the fact that they were called to love God, and through love to know God, and they were created for life, not for death. Well, through sin, through their transgression, death entered Adam and Eve's nature, and through uh, sin and death, which is oftentimes referred to in the single word corruption, both in Scripture and in the Fathers, uh, it was not only corruption of the body, corruption of the 
uh, will and the heart, but also corruption of the mind. We lost some knowledge of God in the fall. And he says this is a divine dilemma. Um, God created us humans for intimacy with him and for immortality. Now that we have veered away from immortality to mortality and from intimacy to ignorance, will God allow us to remain that way? Well, the answer for Athanasius is absolutely not because that's not the character of God. What's really interesting is um, he points out that if the issue were simply the forgiveness of sins, God didn't have to become human because God did not have to effect some change in himself to forgive us. If Adam and Eve said, oh, we're sorry, would God hold against them? No, absolutely not. But the problem is not just within our relationship, it's within our very being. Uh, because we were created to abide in God and He in us, which is what Christ promises to us in the gospel. Uh, but that's because of what Jesus Christ came to, to do. So, um, for humanity to be made immortal again, and for humanity to become um, cognizant of God, to know God intimately again, God has to become human. Why? Because in the beginning, through the Word, God made Adam and Eve. So in these last days, the Word has become human to become the last Adam. And what's really beautiful about this is um, people get confused with these books because in modern categories, we tend to separate the Incarnation and the Atonement. We use the Incarnation to just be about Christ's birth in Bethlehem and the Atonement to just be about His death. And what's confusing about this book is uh, I don't know that Athanasius explicitly quotes any of the... Well, he does just very briefly. He does quote the uh, infancy narrative. And people are like, is this, is this book about Christ's birth or about his death? And the answer for Athanasius is yes. Because in his mind, everything that God does as man through Jesus becoming incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary is atonement. Why? Because from every um, breath of his life, from conception, through death, through his descent to the dead, through his resurrection, to his ascent to the right hand of the Father, he is redesigning what it is to be human. So the very assumption of our nature is actually part of the work of atonement. And that culminates in his death, um, but it doesn't start on Good Friday. Yeah. It's, it's the culmination of something beginning. And, and we've talked about this many, many times. We get to repeat it again. Um, it, yeah, it's about what, who we're becoming. Mm-hmm. And it, it, some people, you know, as moderns, when we, you could read back in Athanasius, St. Irenaeus, God became man that man might become God. We go, okay, that just sounds like really Eastern Buddhist. That's what is yeah. that? Um, but all of the theories. So St. Irenaeus, recapitulation theory, ransom theory, uh, Anselm's satisfaction, Thomas's satisfaction theory. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it, all of us, body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions, all have to be fixed. So as you said, it, the whole life of Christ, mm-hmm. not just we focus just on the cross and maybe paying some penalty for sin or however we, you know people look at that. It has to be his whole life mm-hmm. because what God, like you said, the problem is us. Body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions all got tainted, all got broken. And if we are to have a vibrant, deep, 
fulfilling relationship with God. The, the Father's called it union with God, which mm-hmm. again, that throws some people. What do you mean union with God? Just think um, we're becoming so much like him that we can have these really profound relationships with him in the depths of our being and every aspect of who we are, body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions. Yeah. All of those aspects of us have to be fulf- have to be fixed. Yep then Christ has to somehow assume those. I think that was one of the, the uh, one of the Gregory's yeah, talked about Gregory that. Yeah, Gregory Nazianzus. He yeah, says what is, is unassumed not, What is not is assumed is not healed. Mm-hmm. So Jesus has to, and by assumed, he, what he meant is take to himself. So Jesus took to himself every aspect of what it means to be human, what it means to live the human life in order to fix us and bring that life, bring the life of God into all aspects of aspects of our life that we might have union with God. Yeah. So it can't be just the death. We we really have to think of it as from birth to ascension and enthronement. Mm-hmm. All of that is what God is doing to make us one with Him. Yeah. Back to your diamond analogy. Um, although these different. Um, components of the atonement are distinct. They're not separate. And we're going to okay. speak a little bit more about the death of Christ when we come to uh, your explanation of the ransom theory. I think it's worth restating with Christus Victor um, that Christ overcomes that which we are powerless to overcome. So think about Romans 7. Paul says, the good I want to do, yep. I can't do it. Right. <laughs> and the bad that I know I shouldn't do it, I do it anyway. Yeah. Um, well, that's a human condition in a nutshell. Christ overcomes our sin by assuming our actual human nature through the Virgin Mary, by the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit, and he lives a life of complete and perfect obedience to the Father within our human nature. He is um, he is purifying uh, through his own divine personhood, assuming um, what makes you and I human, he is purging it of sin. Um, and then... Obviously, he's going to purge it of death through the resurrection. Uh, but our problem is not just that we're going to sin and that we're going to die. That's pretty awful. Uh, yeah. But also, too, that we are subject to demonic powers, yeah. which we don't maybe think about a lot in the West, uh, but the Bible does. Yeah. So there. <laughs> is there anything you want to add to the Christus Victor view? Uh, yeah, I have. Well, really quick, I have some friends in Cambodia, and if you ask them, they're, they're missionaries there. How do you preach the gospel to Cambodians? How do you minister to them? What questions are they asking? What do they see as the problem? Again, it yeah. has to start with what problem are we addressing? What question is a culture or a person asking? And he says they want to know who has the power. So yeah. courtroom analogies and lifeboat analogies, that they're like, okay, yeah, fine, we'll get to that. They want to serve a Jesus who can deliver them from the principalities, the powers, the rulers, and authorities, and those were Paul's words but for the first century. But they realize, Cambodians realize, that world is still very real. Mm-hmm. And it impacts us, it impinges on us, and we live in fear. We want a Christ who is resurrected, who has defeated these, yeah. that we might come out from under the tyranny of sin, death, evil, and the, and the devil, and live for this God who rules the universe. Yep. And I'd like to say quickly, so I... Um as a Baptist growing up, uh, if you ask me what the resurrection means, I would say, well, it proves that Jesus is God. And that is absolutely true. The yep. Apostle Paul makes that point over and over again. But there's another point there 
that gets lost. Because the resurrection and ascension are victory, Paul ascribes to the resurrection and ascension Christ's victory over principalities, over powers. He says, if the rulers of this age had known what they would have done, crucifying the Son of God, they sure would not have done it. And the point is, is that, uh, and let me state this carefully, it wasn't like God's power was disputed with death, sin, or hell before the resurrection. God is God. Yeah. <laughs> it's that Jesus, he transformed, there's, there's some sort of victory over sin, death, and hell that did not belong to humanity prior to Christ's resurrection. And um, I'm trying to think about how to say this more clearly. Um, so the resurrection is not simply proof that Jesus is God. It's that the very power structures of the universe have been changed. Right. Sin, death, and hell no longer have to have a hold on a human being anymore right. because Christ right. has defeated them as man. Right. And I think that's the, the, the point of Christus Victor that both personally— and for his body, so the, the passage again, like they go that they go to primarily um, that because of his death and resurrection, primarily because of his resurrection, God made him or placed him to be head over all things. Mm -hmm. uh, he is put in subjection under Jesus's feet, principalities and powers and rulers and authorities, mm -hmm. for the sake of the church, that his church might be free, no longer living in fear or the tyranny of these powers that are out to destroy us. So individually we can take comfort in that but even more primarily is because we are a part of this body yep. this church yet jesus sits on the throne of the universe for the sake of for the good of for the benefit the health and the wholeness and the victory of his church yep so that's why especially with cambodians like absolutely i want to be a part of the church mm-hmm and I, I absolutely, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to be a part of this living body who has been set free yep. from the tyranny of sin, death, evil, and Satan. Mm -hmm. And so, when you you know when you get to heaven, and you've got this Cambodian who comes, and, and you know if that's the way it really works, and Saint Peter says, "Why should I let you in?" And if he doesn't go to the courtroom metaphor, and he if he doesn't say, "Well," You know, i am primarily been forgiven from sins, or I confessed my sins. I followed a Jesus who sat on the throne of the universe, and I trusted him to deliver me, and I lived in the power of his resurrection, and I trusted him as the one who rules, sits on the throne of the universe and rules and reigns for the benefit of his church. Guaranteed, Pete says, come on in, bro. Yeah. I mean... Mark, you just helped me think of something I hadn't connected with us before. We're going to come to the courtroom analogy in our next um, episode. But whenever the courtroom image is used in Scripture, do you know who the accuser is in the courtroom? I'm going to guess Satan? It's Satan every time, mm. <laughs> which is just so fascinating because we think of the courtroom analogy as mm. like God is set against us, but God is the impartial judge. It's mm. Satan in the book of Zechariah and in the book of Revelation, mm. who is just this diabolical prosecuting attorney and saying, hell, 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 give him hell, hell, hell. Mm. And um, the person who's kicked out of the court is the devil, which mm. we'll come back to that. And maybe the what we have to say about the ransom theory will actually explain that more. Um, 
But all these views of the atonement, I once heard someone say that if your view of the atonement does not need the devil to be mentioned or the resurrection, you're leaving out a whole lot of Bible. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah, because the atonement, I mean, why does humanity need to be made at one with God? Well, because we came under the influence, and thus by influence, the domination right. of the devil himself. And do we need just to be forgiven? No. I mean, forgiveness, yeah, I need right. to be forgiven. We absolutely need forgiveness. Absolutely. But if, if we're forgiven and then we die and stay dead forever, I mean, I guess that accomplishes something, <laughs> but not God's <laughs> purpose for it. It's so much bigger. So yeah. if you're fine with it, Mark, let's move on to the sure. ransom theory. Okay, again, we got to ask a question, what is the problem? Mm -hmm. So you do have a little bit of human enslavement again, um, but this one tends to focus more on our corruption or our broken nature or the fact that um, we're, we're under death. Mm -hmm. So, and as you had pointed out as we talked about, you know, how we're going to do this podcast, they're, they're very closely aligned, but there is a bit of a nuanced difference. Mm -hmm. And in this one, it deals primarily with our corruption. So if you think about Christus Victor, you know, maybe we, the way we could summarize that is Jesus became us to deliver us. In ransom, Jesus becomes us to fix us. And so mm -hmm. the problem is corruption. And, and for the ransom theory, uh, Irenaeus talks about recapitulation, but Origen, Clement of Alexandria, the two Gregories, most likely Athanasius and Augustine. Yep. They all held this. So like this was Certainly. the primary understanding of the cross for a long time and in all the various traditions. Mark, have we defined recapitulation before? Because that's a really important... Uh, I, I don't think... Well, you've talked about St. Irenaeus. I mean, I know he's one of your favorites. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who, probably by the should, way, you probably should define it. Uh, Pope Francis declared uh, St. Irenaeus uh, Doctor Unitatis, Doctor of Unity, mm -hmm. two weeks ago. When he announced to the Cardinals, two weeks ago, yeah, West oh, wow. and East is pretty recent. When he announced uh, that he did this, the response from the Cardinals: "Wait, he wasn't already a doctor." It's a kind <laughs> of respect he's always held in the church. But Saint Irenaeus, as I said before, was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by the Apostle John himself. And recapitulation—the uh, best word way to think about recapitulate—is decapitate. <laughs> when you take, when you decapitate someone, decap, taking the head off, recapitulate recapitulation is putting a new head so throughout scripture um god raises up certain people who represent humanity adam moses david um goes on i'm sure i'm leaving out some people oh noah and um god works for these human beings but nonetheless, um, they're not different in their nature than I am. They sin. They have flaws. Through them, God does great things. But through them, they also do bad things. And they're not the answer. Well, recapitulation is Christ repeating the experiences of these really important figures who have come before him in the story of Israel. But he's now uh, repeating their experience redemptively. So for one quick example, God rescues the people of Israel by the hand of Moses through the Exodus, and he wants to take them on a short trip through the wilderness into the promised land. Well, uh, they're like children on a road trip from hell that not only <laughs> ask, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? But, Daddy, did you take us out here to kill us? Uh, it turns very sadistic very quickly, and God is very merciful. But eventually, 
They've accused Moses of um, homicidal motives and God of being diabolical enough. And God says, fine, you want to die in the wilderness? Die in the wilderness. So they all die. Uh, and their children inherit the promised land. Unlike Christ, who spends not 40 years in the wilderness, thank God, 40 days. Like Israel, he is experiencing this time in the wilderness, but unlike Israel, he is trusting in his father's love. He trusts that through this prolonged experience of wilderness dependence that he will actually be brought into um, uh, a land of, of promise and goodness and that his purpose will be accomplished. And when he is tempted by the devil, he doesn't say, yeah, you're right, maybe, maybe God doesn't have the best plan for me. He's actually countering um, the devil's temptation. So this is just one kind of lengthy explanation of how Christ repeats Old Testament historical events, but in doing so, he becomes the new head of that event, and he redeems humanity's uh, prior failure. So, yeah. recapitulation. Yeah. Yeah, the um, way I like to think about it too is it, he, he kind of undoes everything that, all the bad that happened, you can think about it that way. So with recapitulation, if we could come up with a catchy saying, Jesus becomes us to undo all the bad. Mm-hmm. He, uh, so Chris is Victor. Jesus becomes us to deliver us. Ransom, Jesus becomes us to fix us. Recapitulation, Jesus becomes us in order to undo all the bad and actually turn it to good. Yeah, he's untying our knots. Yeah, untying our knots. Interestingly, yep. our mother, Virgin Mary, is referred to as the untier of knots. Because she says yes to God, where Eve said no. Mm. So she untives, ease disobedience, so that the new Adam can be born and untie yeah. Adam's disobedience. Yeah, So, and it's an important point that Paul actually calls Jesus the new Adam. And, mm-hmm. and you see a lot of that, uh, for those of you who want to do more research on uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, Paul makes, I don't know if you call it a contrast or a comparison, but we see that because of Adam... Uh, sin and death enter the world, yep. and it's through Christ and what He does who actually brings forgiveness and acquittal and righteousness and life. Yep. So He kind of undoes everything that Adam did and actually makes it good. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, okay, so ransom. Again, it's it's uh, this idea that we're, God is fixing brokenness, so that's the problem. And this is the one that when we, when we say Athanasius or Irenaeus or Gregory's, mm-hmm. uh, God became man that man might become God. That's their expression. So we're becoming like him. What's being restored in us is the image of God. Jesus becomes us in order to fix us. And so in this, in this uh, theory, God's role is he's a parent or he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a loving parent who wants to fix his kids. The, the problem is sin. It's our corruption, as, as you mentioned, Second Peter mm-hmm. chapter 1. Uh, so here's some ransom language that's used in the New Testament. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, 1 Timothy 2, 6, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Titus 2, 14, and again, the entire book of Exodus. And the key to this one is we participate with Christ in his death and resurrection. So Romans 6, you want to read through Romans 6, at least through verse 12, and notice the with language, all the use of the preposition with. We died with him, we raised with him. And his death and resurrection is our death and resurrection. He's not dying some objective death that happens over there that we're asked to look on and believe that he's a substitute for us. 
his death. He has taken fallen, broken humanity, kills it mm-hmm. so that it can be raised from the dead and God can give us new life. And so in this, uh, I, I like to think of it this way. We're not criminals in need of reform. Mm-hmm. We're not criminals who need to be forgiven and then kind of reform our lives. We're corpses. We're broken people. We're corrupted people that need resurrection. Yeah. The only thing that fixes broken, corrupted humanity is a resurrection. Yeah. And we participate with him. And so the results, Second uh, Corinthians five fourteen to twenty one. The fathers love to go to this verse. It's about reconciliation. It's about new creation. Ephesians chapter two, as well. The point of this is we've been made alive. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a super interesting dimension to this as well, uh, how the devil accidentally contributes to our salvation. Because in addition to the corpse image, there's also a captive. Uh, humanity was, in a, in, in a certain sense, held captive by the devil. No, not, not absolutely. Um, but there was a sense in which the devil exercised um, dominion over humanity through death. So you go back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, I explain to students that Genesis 3 is not a Rudyard Kipling story about how the snake lost its legs. Uh, <laughs> but there's some very poetic, symbolic knowledge, I mean, um, language going on here. And what does uh, God say to the devil? Um, on your belly you shall crawl, and you shall eat dust. So you have a being being lowered. I mean, yeah. it's coming down to earth. Uh, the devil is an angelic being, so he's supposed to be higher. He's being made lower. He's supposed to eat dust. Well, what does uh, God tell Adam as a consequence of sin? From dust you're made, and to dust you shall Mm -hmm. return. Uh, Adam, you're made mortal again. And this is creepy, um, but the devil, in a certain sense, is going to feed on our mortality, um, and in a certain sense, he was actually Lord of the Underworld. And you even see uh, hints of this in, like, Greek myth. Now, obviously, uh, Greek myth is not inspired uh, scripture. It's not. It's uh, <laughs> much messier than that. But within myth, we see shared archetypes, and we see disagreement between Christianity and pagan religion. And uh, one of the things we agree on is the underworld is bad, death is bad, and uh, someone's lord over it who's not good. Mm. And this is Revel- no uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. Now, since the children share in blood and flesh, he, Jesus, likewise shared in them, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who, through fear of death, had been subject to slavery all their life. One of the coolest verses in the Bible. Okay, so fast forward to Revelation. When uh, the Apostle Paul sees John for the first time in that book, so epic. Um, I'll flip to it so I don't uh, sell the language short, because what... Christ says to John is so amazing. This is Revelation chapter 1. John says, When I caught sight of him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. He touched me with his right hand and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the one who lives. Once I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and the netherworld. 
Okay, so once again, uh, Christ is God. So Christ did not have to become human in order to have power over death. He did. But he becomes human to have power over death as a human. Death's relationship to humanity is changing. What's interesting, Hebrews 2 says that at one time, Christ, I mean, the devil had power over death. He doesn't anymore. Who's holding the keys to death in Hades? Jesus. How? Well, this is where uh, ransom theory gets fascinating. And St. John Chrysostom talks about this all the time in his preaching. He actually describes Christ as uh, the bait, that his divinity is the hook and the humanity is the worm, because uh, Christ in the gospel speaks about being handed over all the time. What's interesting, it doesn't say God's going to kill me, okay, which is a healthy corrective to the way the gospel is preached in many Southern evangelical churches. Christ says, I'm going to be handed over. And who is working through the crowds? Um, René Girard, the French writer, does a great job talking about Satan's power to create a mob mentality uh, to basically capitalize on our envy and our fear to, to just get people riled up against innocence. And the church fathers in the collective cry of crucify him, crucify him, these see that humanity, um, I mean, of course, it's our own sin that crucifies Christ. But also through our sin, we are capitulating to the influence of the devil. This is why when Peter has the audacity to tell Jesus, hey, don't get crucified, don't die, Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you're unintelligent. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter is Jesus' friend. Jesus does not think Peter is a devil. But it's a reminder that when we operate in the flesh, we are uh, basically becoming a megaphone, oftentimes for demonic purposes, not using our, our lives to build up, uh, but to tear down, which is diabolical. So uh, this long tangent is going to come to resolution now, okay? So uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if the rulers of this age had understood who Christ was, they would not have crucified him. I think that has a twofold meaning. Number one, uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod probably would not have, nor would Caesar, if he had understood what that means for them. But what's actually more in view is the demonic principalities. If the devil had had full understanding of who Christ was, um, he probably would have not conspired to crucify him. Because what does he do? He does two things. Number one, the devil violently takes a life that he has no right to. Not simply because Jesus is God, but because Jesus is sinless as a human being. And death is a consequence of sin. So the devil basically um, seizes something of Christ that is not owed to the devil. He is not fit to die. So uh, the devil has overstepped the authority which had been provisionally granted to him by God. Second, in doing this, he brings down God incarnate into his last vestige of power and authority, which is death. Mm. So he's accidentally invited God into his own throne room. And this is why in Matthew's gospel, before Christ's resurrection, dead people already start stepping out of tombs because, oh shoot, from the devil's perspective, <laughs> I should not have done that. And yeah. bloop, 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 hell just, the underworld starts spitting life out. It can't hold on to it anymore because yeah. hell went too far. Yeah. And um, 
I just get fired up because it is the most beautiful <laughs> poetic thing. And this is why I don't know in detail the tradition, but you know we have April Fools in, in America. Yeah. It's the first day of April. Well, if you notice, April Fools happens around Easter. April Fools is some development of a French tradition of who is the April's fool? The devil. Oh. Because he accidentally... Uh, he didn't save us, but he accidentally just opened the door and said, Jesus, have him. Yeah. Because Satan is so possessed uh, by envy, um, by pride, by lust for domination, that his own sin blinded him to the fact that he was going against God himself as a human and thus uh, opening the doors to paradise for humanity. And it, John, we've we've been saying this now for all these podcasts, and I I, <clears throat> I love it because again the the benefit for humanity it's about life mm-hmm. that when they look at ransom theory where do they go for the results again Second Corinthians five fourteen we're new creation our souls have been healed our corruption has been healed Ephesians chapter two we've been made alive with Christ His death and resurrection is our death and resurrection. Uh, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, we're no longer enslaved, we've been resurrected. And this makes for, when Jesus said, I came to give them life and life abundantly, mm-hmm. all of this leads to that. All of these theories lead to, I want to give you life. We've said this so many times, but it's worth saying again, the problem in the garden is you will die. Yep. And salvation, we've we got to get away from this thought that salvation is primarily about where I'm going. Yeah, it, it's a great benefit, like you said. F- forgiveness, of course, it's a great benefit, and one day we're all going to spend eternity with God in heaven or whatever that looks like. But it changes life here and now. It changes. It's qualitative. We would call it ontological, meaning it has to do with our very being, what it means to actually live life as a human being. That Jesus mm-hmm. came to give us life and life abundantly, and that doesn't necessarily mean cars and homes and and prosperity. Correct. But real life. That's right. Life with God. Uh, like St. Uh, Augustine said, uh, our, our, hearts, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Mm-hmm. That actually having that union with God that we were intended to have, this journeying with him through life where we're being transformed into his very image, the image that was lost in the garden is being remade in us, and we can have this amazing uh, satisfying life with union with God. And come what mm-hmm. may, whatever whatever physical possessions, material possessions we have or don't have, yep. totally irrelevant. Yep. You look at the, the blessings in Ephesians chapter 1. Not one of them is a material blessing of a house or a car or whatever. I mean, God, yep. if God gives us those things, fantastic. Yep. But relationship with God has been restored because he's fixing us. And, and we're going to get to maybe St. Thomas probably in a couple of weeks. But um, what he said about, and, and you think about um, what are some keys to atonement. Atonement theories are primarily about the offender, not the offended. And so if we have an mm-hmm. atonement theory that says it's primarily about it's primarily about God and his, his anger, and he just somehow has to be made happy. He has to play some sort of mind trick on himself. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's about fixing us. And yes, we have offended God in all of these theories. Either we didn't give him the honor that we, we did, he deserved, we didn't give him the obedience he deserved, he, whatever. Mm-hmm. We weren't able to love him the way we're supposed to. God's more concerned about fixing us. He's a parent. He's a doctor. He loves his kids, and we're living in this broken, fallen, corrupted state. And he says, you know, I got better stuff for you. 
Correct. I've got a better life for you. If you'll walk the way I want you to walk, I've got a better life, and it'll be filled with life and union with God, and there is no material possession that can replace that. That's right. Uh, It's not God's nature that needs to change for us to be in heaven. It's us. (laughs) It's we who have to be made heavenly beings again. And the atonement is these different facets of God's work to do that. Um, I could talk on and on about this now. I'm, I'm actually going to have a happier day now because we talked about this. But um, I, I'm just reminded of the quote by St. Irenaeus, who we mentioned several times. By the way, he uses the word man here to include women, too. This is anthropos, but I'm going to say use the word man because the, the poetic meaning will come across more clearly. He says in his classic book, Against Heresies, the glory of God is man fully alive. And the glory of man is a vision of God. Yeah, and um, and and that's important because most people only quote the first part: the glory yeah. of God is man fully alive. That the second part, though, and say that again: man's the, vision, man's glory is the vision of God. Yeah, the glory yeah. of God is man fully of life. The yeah. glory of man is the vision of God. Yeah, yeah, yep. That's the atonement in a nutshell: yeah. being made alive again. And seeing God, and what's so cool, the twofold ambiguity. So in one sense, that's obviously about Christ, because that man fully alive on Easter Sunday is the glory of God because he is God's glory. Um, and it's our glory to behold that man. But at the same time, God is glorified in us coming fully alive yeah. with Christ. Yeah. And our glory is to see him yeah. through what Christ has done, transforming our nature. Amen. 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 Well... I think that's a good place to close. Um, when we come back next time, we'll kind of just quickly categorize these two things we talked about today, Christus Victor and uh, Ransom Theory, and uh, we'll move on to um, some views that um, we're more familiar with in the West and hopefully tie them all together. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, John.